It is the 200 level episode 98. Mike Carpenter here. We got Herb Lawrence coming up in a bit. Producer at 670 to score. Going to talk some sports media with him. Going to talk a lot of baseball as he is the co host of a White Sox podcast. So we'll have Herb on in just a little bit. I'm back, back in Illinois after a great week in Michigan, way up north, up by the Traverse City, Mackinac City area. And it was gorgeous and nice to kind of detach as much as I could. I still have a little bit of internet access, and it's difficult to not check Twitter and just see if anything big happened. And sure enough, a lot of big things did happen, so we'll get to that in just a second. Before we do, a reminder, the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe, online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices. You can get a custom calzone with any topping you want or one of their favorites. I would recommend the Maui Wowie or the Buffer Zone, plus their signature dipping sauce. Online at dpdoe.com, and best of all, they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana dpdoe.com. Also, State Farm Agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com. That's brianismyguy.com for any insurance issue you may have, life, auto, home, renters, business. Brian and their staff, not only insurance experts, but they are local Champaign-Urbana products, so they have your local interest at heart. That is brianismyguy.com. And finally, 4th and Kirby, online at 4 and, and as you may have noticed, it's really hot. You need t-shirts. We are a long way from hoodie weather as we sit here at the end of June into early July. Fourth and Kirby, they have vintage-inspired Illini apparel online at fourthandkirby.com. And best of all, you can use coupon code 200LEVEL or the 200LEVEL to get 10% off your order. That's fourthandkirby.com. Also, Illini Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network partners with the 200LEVEL as we enter episode 98 I can't really call it the relaunch because episode 36 or 37, that's when we started this thing back in August. We are so close to the 100th episode of the 200 level. We'll do that next week with Trevor and Harry and uh, maybe some surprises along the way as well. A good week coming up, though. Again, we have Herb Lawrence coming on in just a bit from 670 The Score. We have Shannon Ryan coming on later this week from the Chicago Tribune, working on getting Ryan Baker next week as well, longtime fixture in Chicago media, and of course, a manager on the Flying Illini team. So as we sort of transition in these off months from non-sports conversation to sports conversation, I was relieved last week when finally baseball, they figured it out. We got a 60-game season, and even better, July 23rd, that's a Thursday, looks like Nationals-Yankees to kick things off. Garrett Cole, Max Scherzer, that's not a bad way to kick off what is a 60-game season, and I understand how this will be interpreted as a somewhat bastardized season, as we look back in the history books, I remember distinctly watching 61 back when that would have came out in the early 2000s and how they always talked about the asterisk that they put next to Roger Maris's record for a while. I mean, that asterisk stayed there because it was a 162-game season instead of the usual 154, I think it was before then. So a 60-game season, asterisk all over. We understand that this is unusual to put it mildly, but I think that we're so starved for sports. And as a baseball fan myself, even just being outside today in the absolute heat and humidity that we get so used to in Illinois, this would be the kind of day where an afternoon Cubs Cardinals or an afternoon Yankees Red Sox, as we get near the 4th of July holiday, would have been something that I would have on the TV, just sit and watch. And the great thing about baseball is that normally in 162-game season, you can kind of tune out. You know, you can pick your spots. In a 60-game season, this will be a very different viewing experience because every game essentially is worth three times as much as it would be in a normal season. 60 games versus 162, not quite a multiplier of three, but that tells you that every game 
There's not going to be this thing that I used to do when I was younger, where my dad would have to convince me that, yeah, I know the Yankees are one and two, but they do have 159 games left. If they were to start one and two this year, that's a lot more consequential because, hey, you'd only have 57 games after that. A lot of things are going to be unusual about this. The geographical divisions where you got East, Central, West, but it does open the door for some cool opportunities like the Cubs and White Sox playing each other because they're in the same division or the Yankees and Mets. Interleague play has taken a bit of the sheen off of matchups like that, but it's that much more consequential, again, because of the shortened season. And I love the idea of baseball having this sprint, a mad dash to the playoffs in October. Now, this is all assuming, of course, that things go without a hitch for the next three weeks leading up to the opening day, I guess, of July 23rd. We have our summer rosters figured out. I think it's about 60 guys in each team's player pool. And you're finding teams, they're releasing those names, and then they're getting to whatever location they're needing to to get started with not spring training, but summer camp, so to speak. But we already saw today Mike Leak and Cardinals fans, you would remember him, of course. He's now with the Diamondbacks. He's opting out of this baseball season. His agent released a statement which reads, During this global pandemic, Mike and his family had many discussions about playing this season. They took countless factors into consideration, many of which are personal to him and his family. After thorough consideration, he has chosen to opt out of playing in 2020. This was not an easy decision for Mike. He wishes the best of luck and health for his Diamondback teammates this season, and he's looking forward to 2021. Well, for starters, it's Arizona. And it is a little bit hard to indict Mike Leake for not wanting to play in Arizona at this rate. Arizona, Texas, Florida, really the hot spots right now, and things are just exploding in those regions. Where it makes you wonder, too, does baseball need to make a decision about whether or not these teams will play in Arizona, Texas, Florida? Which, reminder, that's where the NBA season supposedly will take place, in Florida. Mike Leake is not going to be the last person to opt out of playing. And not just for baseball, as we see the NBA come back, we'll probably have a few players decide not to show up in Orlando and as the NFL season gets started. Same situation where Malcolm Jenkins was on CNN and asked about it, and he said, I don't really think we should be playing right now in the midst of this pandemic. And that is something that it's easy to do as a fan that is craving live sports to come back. It's easy to forget that there are human stories or relationships that some of these athletes need to consider. And it goes back to my big issue with COVID-19 is not so much getting it myself, but being the carrier to someone that I care about that is more susceptible to a virus like this. Sure, 33 years old, fairly healthy. I think I'd be able to withstand it, be okay. Odds are I'd be fine. But if I were to start acting as if everything were normal, not wearing a mask, or to take it the next step, actually playing organized sports with a bunch of people on a court or on a field, football especially, where you're just running into each other, then what does that mean? I can't hang out with my parents because they're in that age group that is more susceptible to it. So we're going to see more of these happen. Is it going to be a large number? Probably not. Probably less than 1% of guys that are going to opt out and say, you can keep the money. I would just rather not play this season. But there will be a few. And I hope as these names come out, they aren't going to have their names drug under the mud because they elected to not play in this the most unusual year, and to be honest, somewhat scary year, especially when you consider the location of the Diamondbacks in Arizona, and then again, teams in Texas and Florida. I wouldn't begrudge any of those players for saying, you know what, I'm just going to sit this one out. And this is where the onus probably falls back on commissioners to decide, can you really let the Texas Rangers congregate in Arlington at their brand new facility, by the way? Have you seen this? It's like a warehouse. 
I know the renderings made it a lot more, I don't know, kind of like a plaza with a nice park and everything. But now that we actually see this stadium done, it is essentially a big warehouse with a retractable roof, no personality. And what's weird is that the Rangers actually had a decent enough stadium as is that I think opened up in the early 90s. So it's not that old. And it was one of the first retro parks that had that sort of vintage flavor to it. But regardless, Arizona, Texas, Florida, California, the numbers are going up too. And it is understandable why some of these players would just say, you know what, I'll see you in 2021. As a fan, as much as I crave it, if you were to tell me right now that there will not be sports until 2021, I've gotten far enough where I would probably get over it. I'd be fine. I'd find other things to do. But I would be lying if I said that I don't already have Thursday, July 23rd circled on the calendar so I can go over to my sister and brother-in-law's place where he's smoking a brisket. We're going to watch Garrett Cole, Max Scherzer. Again, fingers crossed because a lot of things can happen. And the way baseball has let this thing get dragged out as long as it did, I worry about an outbreak here or an outbreak there derailing the whole thing. We'll get more information about the season. I know the schedules are going to be coming out this week. There's a few games like the Yankees and Nationals that have gotten leaked out. And we are three weeks away, essentially, from this Thursday, three weeks away from opening day for the 2020 Major League Baseball season. As a Yankees fan with their opportunity to win it all, even in a short, asterisk-ridden season, I'll take it. And I think the same goes for a lot of fans. When you look at the White Sox, for example, and we'll talk to Herb about this, a team that is young, that in a sprint, a 60-game sprint, might actually be in better position than they would have been in a 162-game marathon. So there will be some teams, some outliers that wouldn't necessarily make it in a 162-game season that might be competing for a World Series. I don't mind that. And let's be real, every team's in the same boat. So we could sit here and say, well, this is fair to this team, this is unfair to another. But the expectations are right there for everyone to see. It's a 60-game season, it's unusual, and everyone is going to have to adapt. With this player pool, the ability to have, I think, 30 players at any given time, it will be interesting to see especially how pitching matchups are done. Innings limits aren't going to be that big of a thing. It's an extended playoff, and I think that that will make for a very fun, I think, what is it, 10-week season, essentially, six games a week, leading into the playoffs. So thank goodness we got sports back on the agenda, but of course, like we've had the last few months, there's always the caveat about coronavirus. As mentioned before, we have some states, especially in the South, where this is blowing up. And the problem with any virus is that we could say, well, it's only an Arizona or a Texas or a Florida problem right now. And unfortunately, the reality is that it will come back to Illinois. The state's done great. We should be proud of the efforts that we've had. I know at least in Champaign-Urbana, since this thing got started, We've really been valuing social distancing, mask wearing since that became a thing. Every time I go to Schnucks, I see masks all around. In fact, I cannot recall the last time I saw someone in Schnucks without a mask. So that is a community effort to say, you know what, we don't want it to happen here. We're going to do what we need to to try to stem the numbers of COVID-19. But unfortunately, people go places in the summer. I just came back from Michigan. I'll go get tested later this week. Karen and I will. I'm going to Wisconsin at the end of July. And I'll get tested after that, too, and quarantine if necessary. But, you know, people go places. It's the summer. And I think there's enough normalization about COVID-19 where people will take the trips to Florida, for example, and then come back here. And what was a little bit alarming, and I don't want to sound like the old guy on the porch yelling at those darn kids, but last weekend at Joe's Brewery in Campus Town, there was a picture that got leaked of what looked like a absolutely packed balcony an outdoor patio. Now, granted, it was outdoors. So, okay, that's one good check. I didn't see mask in the picture. And really, you can't really drink with 
mask on, so I understand that. But this is a concern for a college community like Champaign-Urbana. Normally, I'm happy the students come back. Yes, it can be a bigger pain to go to Target, or it can be a bigger pain to go to one of my favorite food places because there might be a line out the door of students. That, that happens. There's a different energy in Champaign-Urbana when the students are here. So I value that. But this year of all years, there is more, oh boy, 40,000 kids. They're coming back. And we could say, I know there's different travel restrictions for, let's say, Chinese students, for example. They're going to have a harder time getting here. They wouldn't really be the issue. America is by far the worst country in the world at this right now. It's an embarrassment. 40,000 plus new cases a day. And even though deaths are somewhere between 250 and 1,000 per day, depending on the day, hospitalizations are in fact going up. So don't buy into this narrative that, well, the numbers are just going up because of testing. No, the hospitalizations are still increasing as well. And hopefully the deaths don't follow long after that, like they did in New York back in March and April. But this is a concern because naturally when you get that many more people into this ecosystem down here in Champaign-Urbana, there will be more cases of COVID-19. And yes, having lived on campus back in 05 to 09, there were not a ton of places that I went to outside of that bubble. When you're there, you were kind of on an island. It's very weird for anyone that is not familiar with Campus Town's place in Champaign-Urbana. It's smack in the middle. It's like there's a dome over it because kids really tend to stay at the Walgreens on Green Street or the County Market off of 4th Street instead of going to Schnucks or Meyer. The fact is they will venture out. They will go into the community and that will lead to more transmission. Again, if I get it, fine. I'll sit at home for a couple of weeks. I'll try to come back on the other side of it healthy and I'll probably be okay. But for a community that has a lot of people at risk, we're talking about 120,000 people or so in Champaign-Urbana. There's a significant number of those who would be considered at risk. That's not a good recipe. And University of Illinois is not alone in this. Higher education sees the writing on the wall. They need to get students back if they want the budgets to actually work this year. So they're going to do everything in their power to have socially distanced classes with hand sanitizer and mask. And that's all great. That's one step. But you cannot account for the social life that these kids are going to have. They're not going to stay in their apartments and away from each other. That's just not in their DNA. And they're young. They feel invincible. I recall distinctly how invincible I felt from 18 to 22 years old on campus the amount of shenanigans I'd get in with very little regard for other people or even my own health for that matter. And I know for a fact that as the students get back and the weather's still warm, there will be party after party, packed balcony after packed balcony, and there's no way to police that. Now, could this happen back in the suburbs if they were to stay home? Sure, it could. It would happen anywhere, even if they don't congregate back on campus, but it will happen at a higher frequency right here in Champaign-Urbana. It is a concern. When I was on vacation, I tried my best to stay off of Twitter and not get in the muck of it, but there was one tweet that a few people I am Twitter friends with or whatever you'd call it, they liked this tweet from this guy named Jim, Jim from Minnesota, and why I felt compelled to respond to him, I'm not sure, but essentially this tweet that he had said that, okay, all these stories about college football players getting coronavirus, hey, listen, 99.5% of them are going to be okay, so let's just play the games and move on. And I replied in a sarcastic fashion that, well, it's a good thing that they aren't interacting with their communities at all. So there won't be any transmission. We're all good. The point being, yes, right now, for all we know, there are no positive tests over at the University of Illinois. None of those players got it. Training camp is going on just fine, or not training camp, but lifting programs, things like that. But it's inevitable. 
And it's also inevitable that when one guy has it, more than likely another few will get it as well. And somehow, some way, they will make their way out in the community, which again, this community and this state has done so well at keeping this thing at bay after the initial bump back in late March, early April. It's going to come back home. It's going to come right here into Champaign-Urbana. Now, what will be interesting to see from a sports angle is how professional leagues and college programs are going to deal with this differently. I actually think the college programs will put that much more of an emphasis on making sure these games happen than even the pro leagues. Pro leagues are private business, but they can probably withstand one year without a Major League Baseball season. Certainly the owners can. That's how they were acting the entire negotiation process. College programs cannot afford to not play these football games. Without the TV money, a lot of these places are sunk. If the games aren't played, if you don't get the TV money, at a minimum, you have layoffs within your athletic program. But at worst, you probably have programs that may go under or be suspended where you just simply cannot operate the men's gymnastics team or the women's golf team on this budget if you don't get that money coming in. I think that Michigan and Ohio State are the two programs in the Big Ten that could probably withstand this. Illinois is not one of those. Despite the $50 million that they would get from the Big Ten Network or whatever that deal is, based on TV money alone. But again, that doesn't come in if you don't play the games. That leads me to believe that a lot of these administrators of higher education, they'll say the right things about safety and protecting their students. And then, of course, athletic directors will say the same about their athletes, their student athletes, Harry Black. They'll say all the right things, but in actuality, they know that they must play these games. They need that money. And that will lead to some decision-making, I'm afraid, that is not going to be in the best interest of the student-athlete. Again, Jim from Minnesota on Twitter, yeah, 99.5% of them will be fine. But they live in communities. As much of a bubble as Campus Town is in Champaign-Urbana, it ain't that much of a bubble. These kids will still go to, well, here's an example, Portillo's up on North Prospect. They'll go there. And so do a lot of other people in Champaign-Urbana. That's one small example of where those worlds will intersect and transmission could happen. It is a tenuous time, right? I did not think that we'd be sitting here at the end of June in this position as a country. And that's a failure of leadership. It's a failure of people that should know better and didn't have to politicize things as easy as wearing a stupid mask. Imagine that, a minor inconvenience of putting a cloth mask on your face, but God forbid... It is infringing on your freedom and you must speak out against it. It's amazing how a minor inconvenience can become some sort of rallying cry for quote unquote freedom. When in actuality, it's just about compassion for other people. Wear a stupid mask. There's my public service announcement for the day. It's ridiculous that we even have to address that though. But yes, the United States failed. We failed this test. And it's a variety of reasons from the leadership to yes, some selfish citizens that have decided to act against the interests of their community. Now we're getting higher education in on the act. They are potentially acting irresponsibly by bringing these students back. And yeah, I know, again, the numbers look great for Illinois, right now at least, though that can very quickly change. So these decisions that, let's say, Josh Whitman, or even take it higher up to Chancellor Jones, are going to have to make in the next month before students start packing up their SUVs and heading down the second week of August, second or third week of August. And they are going to have really no one situation here. The realities financially are staring them in the face if they don't have school as scheduled and especially from an athletic perspective if they don't have these games. That's why I think the games will go on. The students will come back. But at what cost? 
And that will be something that will be hard to quantify at the end of this. You know, uh, how many hospitalizations and deaths were directly tied to students coming back to campus? We'll never know. We will never know that. But it ain't helping, right? And I'm thinking the same thing as we get back into regular school, K through 12. Over at Jefferson Middle School as a sixth grade writing teacher. And we still don't really have the direction on what our school year is going to look like. When we get that, probably within the next three, four weeks, it's, again, a no-win situation for any of these school districts, for any state board of education, anywhere in this country. There are going to be decisions made that are not 100% safe because we do need to resume life in some normal fashion. I get it. You know, We cannot just sit at our homes and wait for this vaccine to come, which probably won't come until early 2021. But there is a significant health and safety concern here. And that's where it's tricky for me, right? I don't want to navigate this thing and sound like a hypochondriac, which I'm not. But I also don't want to be so brash as to say, well, how inconvenient about wearing a mask? Or God forbid we actually put teachers back in the classrooms with 30 kids in there. No, that's no, that's the normalcy that we cannot really go back to in this state. Final point on sports and COVID. We got an email, my dad and I. We went down to one horseshoe ticket per game. And you may be thinking, well, how does that work? The idea being that we didn't go to all the games last year, and anytime we needed to scrap up an extra horseshoe ticket, we could do so. Plus, we got this spot on the west side against one of those brick walls that we tend to just stand during the games and not even sit in the horseshoe. I digress. All season ticket holders, they got an email from the DIA, which gave three options for football tickets this year. The first option was to opt in. That Yeah, I want to go to the games. I understand there's going to be limited capacity, but put my name in that pool or that lottery for the 8,000, 10,000 tickets, however many it is, that will actually be able to go inside the stadium. That's number one. Number two, I believe, is an opt-out where your money for the tickets this year will go into the iFund. So it's like a donation, essentially. And that would help out student-athletes and yada, yada. That's option number two. Option number three is to opt out and just move that money to your 2021 season tickets. The Bears are doing something similar that they announced today where if you don't want to go to games this year, don't feel comfortable or whatever it may be, you can just simply keep your seat for 2021 and move the money a year ahead, which is the right thing to do, or at least the right thing to offer. And it was not much of a deliberation with my dad and I because, for one, We aren't super pumped about Illinois football anyway, if it was a normal year. But for another, we aren't super pumped to be in a stadium, even socially distanced, even six feet away from people, if there in fact are another eight to 10,000 people in there as well. So because we live close enough and we can set up a nice little home tailgate or whatever we want to do, plus that's the other thing, right? No tailgating. You can go in the stadium, but you can't tailgate. And I get that to an extent because you can police people when they're in the stadium far better than you can if they're in the lots and they decide to have, oh, a big 20-person tailgate. Unfortunately, this will probably just mean that instead of tailgating on lot 31, people will just throw big bashes outside of the stadium. And again, you know, you can't really police that. So it, it sort of is what it is at this point. But we opted out. And I think a lot of people probably will do the same thing. It'd be interesting to see or find out, and I don't think there'd be any way to do so, how many people elect to opt in. And depending on that number, then do you take the remaining, let's say, 3,000, 4,000 you could put in the stadium and try to encourage students to go? And would students go anyway, right? This is what's going to be really interesting about these college football games where they need all the revenue that they can get. And one way to do that, of course, is to sell tickets. 
But if it's not a full house, and God knows, Illini football fans, we're not really used to a full house, but not even thirty-five or 40,000 like we've grown accustomed to, then the experience of going to a game and seeing it in person, it's somewhat diminished. Maybe not even somewhat, but a lot. I was thinking about what I enjoy about going to college sports or just any sporting event, and it would be being in a large crowd, getting that energy or feeding off of that energy of tens of thousands of other people. And if you don't have that, and instead I'm watching a three and a half, and keep in mind, these games are still going to go three and a half hours long. You know college football is not going to have any sort of changes to their pace of play because they really need to get the commercials in this year more than any year. So we're talking three and a half hours inside of a somewhat dead stadium watching an okay football team. Eh, I don't know. So we opted out. It will be interesting to see who opted in, or I should say how many. And if I were to guess, though, if I were to guess, I bet there's still about ten to 15,000 people that would say, you know what? I want to go. I still want to go to this thing. And that would be enough to fill whatever percentage they can, which I think is 20% or 25%. All of these numbers floating around the state of Illinois, phase four, how many people can go to restaurants, sporting events, things like that. But it is one of those things, too, from a spectator standpoint, where if you can't do it right, then why do it at all? That's my approach, at least. I don't begrudge anybody that would say, I want to go to the games so they can get back in the stadium, so they can see live sports in front of them. I get that, too. But I think about how our bands, the original band I'm in, the cover band I'm in, and how we're talking playing in front of 75 to 100 people, maybe, outside or inside. But until we can do it right, we aren't going to bother. So for football, it does seem as if they're pressing ahead. Again, financial considerations are probably driving this thing. And I get it. But that doesn't mean that it's going to go off without a hitch. And in terms of the game day atmosphere and all that, it will be kind of funny to be sitting at my house, which is within earshot of Memorial Stadium, and hearing the fireworks go off anytime Illinois scores or they come out of the tunnel. And I feel bad for the players and the coaches in this regard. They come out, Thunderstruck's playing, they're all pumped, and there's 8,000 people. Better than nothing, right? Better than nothing. And in all likelihood, those 8,000, 10,000 people will be the most avid fans. So they'll bring something to the table. If you are one of those brave souls, good on you. Just, you know, practice social distancing, all that. Even though you will be outside. So that does help. Last thing here. Io DeSumo, back on the news. Though nothing he said or did. John Rothstein is a college basketball guru, let's call him, on Twitter. He has a podcast and he had Brad Underwood on today. And I don't know if the podcast has been released yet, but he had tweeted out something that Brad Underwood said, which is that if I were to come back for his third year, he'd probably have a statue made for him. That's how important or how big of a deal that would be. And I think we would all agree with that. But of course, just the mere mention of that has Illini Twitter thinking, oh my God, could Io be coming back? Now, we don't know anything. I wouldn't begin to speculate, even though I still probably err on the side that he still goes pro Kofi comes back. That seems to still be the likely end result of all this. But with the deadline on August 3rd, which I guess right now would be about five weeks away, that's fast approaching. A decision has to be made. And as we've seen, the entire three and a half coming up on four-month stretch with this COVID-19, things are continually evolving. There's a lot more uncertainty even now than I'd say a month ago because of the spike in cases. And what is that going to mean for professional leagues, including the NBA? So Io's a smart kid. He's not going to make a dumb decision. If he thinks he can get drafted and then stick with the team, he's going to go in all likelihood. And also, another consideration is, well, are you going to be able to have indoor college basketball this year? Now, that's not to say that they would think, hey, let's just put the court 
on Memorial Stadium. They're outdoors. No. They're either going to have basketball or they aren't. That's going to be a decision that's a little bit different than football because of the indoor nature of it. But you still have to ask yourself if you're Io or any of these other guys maybe or maybe not going pro, is there a chance that I would come back and there'd be a half season or no season at all? We just simply don't know. So I, I don't envy Io or any of these other kids that are making this decision because for one, you had March Madness taken away from you. That sucks to begin with. But for another, the whole process of getting feedback and determining where you might end up in the draft order, that's been completely thrown on its head. And these scouts that could have seen you at combines and all that, instead they have to go off the tape and maybe uh, work out here or there, which I don't even know how they're scheduling those things right now. But it's unfortunate because it does seem as if the stage would have been set for Io to really solidify himself as a first-round pick if the NCAA tournament, and really the Big Ten tournament before that, had went on without a hitch. Well, they didn't. But I also understand why he would say, you know what, I've proven what I can, and there's not much more for him to do here. And that's true to an extent. Though if he were to come back, if he were to come back, I think Illinois would be the favorite to win the Big Ten. And I don't think that's hyperbole. So as we sit here, grasping at any sports straw that we can to make ourselves feel better about when they do come back, that would be one that would certainly send me over the moon, Io coming back. But as long as Kofi comes back, and we're still waiting for word on that, of course, I feel fine. All right, it's time to bring on Herb Lawrence, and as I read his biography, you're going to think, this is a pretty busy guy. He is. He's the executive producer of The Lawrence Holmes Show on 670 The Score and Cubs Radio, also on 670 The Score, co-host of the Locked on Sox podcast and co-host of the 773 Sports podcast. You can find all of those on Twitter at Locked on Sox and at 773 Sports. You can find him on Twitter as well, and this is how you find it, Lawrence Backwards. Okay, so at E-C-N-E-R-W-A-L-23. We'll talk baseball, of course, but also how he and Lawrence have turned that radio show at 670 The Score into a platform for some of the larger racial and social issues being talked about today. So without further ado, it is Herb Lawrence on the 200 level. Herb, wanted to start baseball with you, and with a 60-game season, and I'm looking at a White Sox roster that's pretty young, I, I got to think it's kind of beneficial that a team like this White Sox team only has to go through a 60-game season as opposed to 162, and that if there is a team, I about said American League, even though that's not really going on to the same extent this year, that they, they were kind of a sleeper pick anyway, and now it seems like that path might be easier for them to, one, get in the playoffs, but two, with that young lineup especially, they could be a dangerous team this year. Indeed. Uh, I was talking to my friend the other day about the short season, making the White Sox a dangerous team. You don't want to play because usually a rookie uh, would hit a wall around game 100. They haven't played this many games in their professional careers at, at all with only 60 games in two months. And especially the weather being the way it is nice and warm. Usually players take a longer time to warm up to the weather hitting wise. So um, their hitters like Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez, uh, Jose Abreu's best months in his career have been in August. He's by far the best months he has had uh, in his career. And, you know, uh, Edwin Encarnacion and Yasmani Grandal, Yohan Mancada, they should all hit the ground running immediately. The hitting should not be a problem. I, on the same token, the pitching should have a little bit problem with all pitching because of the ramp up. It's only three weeks. 
the weather's great. Balls are going to be a little slick because it's already humid. So usually you would have in a regular season, it would be the 162 grind. You start in March or April and the pitchers are dominant because the ball's, you know, a little bit more better to grip. Weather's colder, bats are a little tighter. So now I think the White Sox offense will show exactly what it needs to do. And I think their pitchers, while will struggle a little bit, they're uh, got the depth that they wouldn't have in a regular year, March or April, because Rodon should be back fully. Kopech should be back fully. Maybe Dame Dunning also should be back fully. And so if a pitcher struggles, starter or reliever struggles, there's no, you know, hesitation to pull that guy out because it's 60 games. It's that guy is not ready to cool. Go ahead, hit the showers. We'll get you next time. We're, <laughs> we're good. And you have more guys who can ready to go. Like if Ronaldo Lopez is not pitching well, you don't have to pitch him anymore. He does not have to be in the five minute rotation. So yeah, it, it favors the White Sox. I would, I would have loved for have a full season of these guys and the full development, but we are dealt this hand, so I think the White Sox get a good advantage here, especially because of the youth they have. Painting with a broad brush here, but is it fair to say that pitching in general is the next step for that franchise to really establish itself for a good five, six-year run? Because, again, you look at the lineup, and as young mm-hmm. as it is, and as many uh, the diversity within that lineup in terms of power hitters and contact hitters, and then I look at the pitching staff, and there are those young pieces but it seems as if um, a good percentage of those young pieces, they need to hit in order for that rotation to be stable and then especially for that bullpen to be reliable. So is that really the the final check that they need to check off here is just the pitching staff in general, or is it more specific to rotation or the bullpen? I think their bullpen is pretty pretty well you know, uh, stocked. Aaron Bummer, Fry, um, Cordero, they're probably going to let um, Jose Cal- Jose oh, Jesus Calame. Jesus? Yeah, that's his other guy. Calame. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Calame, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, Calame go after this year, and they have a lot of guys who can be close. Even Ronaldo Lopez, I think his best spot when he hits his maximum will be as a closer. And to, to your point, the White Sox saw that their pitching staff in the future would be a little rocky. Because, like you said, you would have to hit on Kopech. You would have to hit on Cease. Uh, Gilito's already arrived. Lopez looks a little shaky. You're not going to have Giovanni Gonzalez pretty much for the stretch run. And while I love Dallas Keiko and he signed for multiple years, that, that guy's probably not here for five years after this year. So they drafted two supposed starters in Crochet and Jared Kelly to fill out their pitching staff for the future. I think Crochet should be on the team this year. If if not, um, they had, I don't think he was on the, the 44-man rotation as yet, but I think they want to have him to do a Chris Sale type of thing where he comes out of the bullpen his first year and he's filthy. He's 100 miles, just throw your fastball, throw your curveball, your change, your slider, and then eventually develop into a starter pitcher. The Jarrett Kelly guy is a first-round talent. 100-mile-per-hour uh, talent out of Refugio, Texas, that would have been a first-round pick, but signability was the problem. And the White Sox went over slot with him to get him to sign as a second-round draft pick. I think he is the future. Two, three years down the road, we'll be talking about Jarrett Kelly, Michael Kopech, and Le- Lucas Giolito as the one, two, three of the White Sox rotation. 
It seems like the White Sox had to take an entirely different approach because I recall, especially post-World Series run from about 06 to let's even say 13, 14, the rosters were fine. You know, 80, 83, 80, 45 wins a year. They would get the aging veterans to come in and round out a lineup. But there wasn't a long-term plan. It was very kind of patchwork, a Band-Aid here and a Band-Aid there. So not to turn this into a Cubs-White Sox thing, but we, we saw the Cubs and the entire teardown and rebuild that they had, and the White Sox seemed to be exiting the rebuild part of it now into win-now mode. How much do you attribute the success of the Cubs pulling that off uh, to Rick Hahn being able to say, all right, let's take a different approach here to what Kenny Williams as GM especially seemed to really kind of get into that rut of free agency over building from within, acquiring draft picks, things like that. If this was to meet its maximum where I, you know, I think people are very unrealistic with their world series expectations because every team has that. And we haven't had like a back-to-back World Series champion in like, 20 years since the two thousand. Yeah, in 2000. So, yeah, it's a hard thing to do. All I'm asking for, and I think most reasonable White Sox fans are asked for, is to, to compete. Be in the playoffs most years. More years than you're not. So, if this was to be a success... I would give multiple, like I would give probably 85% of the credit to Rick Hahn because it was his baby. It was his thing that he had to force it to Kenny and to Jerry to say, we got to tear it down. We got to go no half measures anymore. We got to go a full measure. We got to go all in and rebuilding this whole thing. And that was Rick Hahn's plan. So I'll give him 85%. Kenny is still there and it had to take Jerry to listen for this to happen and him to get the money out there for guys like Yasmani Grandal, who now has the most, uh, the biggest contract in White Sox history, and then going and get Dallas Keiko and then Edwin Encarnacion. So most of the credit would go to Rick Hahn in this regard if the White Sox do pull this off. He's done a masterful job, but I just want to pause on the White Sox fans calling him one of the best teams (laughs) in White Sox history. He hasn't had a winning season yet. He's done a great job in this rebuild. I got to give him kudos. This offseason, Excellent. Now on the field, let's keep the guys healthy. Let's see the development continue. I, I would love to have eat some crow on Rick Hahn because I've been one of his most vocal critics on Twitter and on, on our uh, podcast, Lockdown Sox. Critical of Ryan Pace, too. And we can get to that in a bit, yeah. right? But yeah, I've seen that. And I think that uh, as time goes on and even kind of being reminded after Cam Newton signs a team-friendly deal with the Patriots, and the Bears have Nick Foles for potentially three years. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But I, I look at the White Sox and the AL Central, and I'm thinking, I remember many conversations with Jeremy Werner back in 93.5 about how during that run in the first decade of the 2000s, the Twins were always there. They were just, you could count on them being one or two in that division and sometimes taking the division from the White Sox. And as I look at that AL Central, Tigers are at the beginning of a rebuild. The Indians are on the tail end of whatever championship window they had, and the Royals are the Royals. So it seems like we got a two-horse race again for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I I would agree there. Twins look like they're formidable t- a formidable team. They do have a little older pieces, like having Boomstick Nelson Cruz there. He is, I don't know how many more years he can hit home runs, maybe forever. Uh, just signing Josh Donaldson, a little older veteran third baseman there. Um, but yeah, the Twins look like a formidable team for years to come. And uh, Falvey out there is doing a good job being the GM and bringing in some good talent. 
I'm always wary of the Kansas City Royals. No matter what, even if they're supposed to be bad, they always give the White Sox hell. Always. Like, they might win the, the season series, the White Sox, but all those games are going to be battles and always going to be uh, contentious. I That's the team I think I hate the most in the AL Central. But, yeah, it's the White Sox and Twins for the foreseeable future. The Tigers have some things coming down the pike with the Casey Mize guy and some other uh, minor leaguers. I think they got the first pick this past year. They got the uh, big-time prospect for who's a third baseman, power-hitting third baseman. So in the future, the Tigers might be a team that the White Sox might have to deal with. But, yeah, for the next two, three years, the Twins are going to be our nemesis. And, man, Twins fans are just puffing their chest and, like, <laughs> acting like they've been winning games forever. Yeah, you won 103 games last year, but the year before you won 79. Calm down. Isn't it amazing how perception, you talk about the Royals and how the White Sox could win that season series, but you don't look forward to those games because it's just they're always pesky. And I think about, in all honesty, I've probably seen about eight or nine Yankees-White Sox games at Comiskey, guaranteed rate, whatever, right? And I feel like I've seen one win. And, and whenever the White Sox and the Yankees play, I'd have to go check the record, but it seems like the White Sox tend to play really well against the Yankees. And then I think about interdivision opponents and how, even though I know that the Yankees beat the Orioles a lot, I hate playing them. And they're pesky mm-hmm. and they're annoying, even if they're the worst team in the di- division for some reason. Uh, do you think that this setup that they have this year, geographical divisions, uh, we talked about the 60-game schedule being a benefit to the White Sox. Do you think that this open central division is another benefit to them? Or... Um, how do you think it compares to the other two, the West and the East? I think if you had to be in a pod, a Central, West, or East um, pod, I would probably choose the Central because of the bottom is really bad. Like the Pirates are not that good. Uh, Cardinals are, you know, the this NL Central's for the most part just a middling conference or uh, division. So. The rest of the four teams, the Cubs, the Cards, the Brewers, and the Cardinals are fine. They're not great. There's no world beaters in there. Twins won 103 games, but no one's going up to the Twins. It's like, man, we're scared to win, play these teams. Like you were talking about with Cleveland. They're on the end of their, their rope. They just traded one of their aces, Corey Kluber, even though he didn't pitch like an ace last year, away for pennies on the dollar. Tigers are bottom barrel, and so are the Kansas City Royals. If I got to go, if I'm in the AL East or the AL or the NL East, I got the Yankees. I don't care if Boston's down, they're still the Red Sox. The Rays are always tough as hell. Yeah, and you got the bottom team of Baltimore Orioles and Toronto's in their middling, but I don't want to go against the Mets, the Phillies, the Braves. That's the yeah. And then the world champions, <laughs> the Nationals. I mean, right, yeah. That's tough in that East. Like, yeah, you only, if you're the Yankees, you only have. 20 games against those teams, but man, that's a gauntlet. Like, who in that AL East you want to play besides the Florida Marlins? That's it. You know, the goal gets the Mets here, crosstown rival. They're throwing a lot of pitching at you, and people are pre- predicting them for the NL East uh, title. Some people want them to be the team in the, maybe a subway series with them and the Yankees. And like I said, the other three teams are really tough, but you go out to that West, I think the best team in baseball this year is the Dodgers. The Padres are improved. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks are better than they were. You know, they're the only bad team out there. I would say the Seattle Mariners are bad. Yeah. And then if you go to the AL or the NL uh, West, um, 
you don't want to face any of those teams, I don't think. I mean, the Giants are kind of bad. The Padres were 72 wins, but all those teams are improving, yeah. Um, I Yeah, Central, you got like a couple teams you're like, I would love to go to Pittsburgh. Firstly, ballpark great. Secondly, we're going to get a couple dubs. <laughs> and then you would, of course, want to go to Detroit to get a couple dubs. So there's no other division or to a Central, East, and West that is easier than that Central. Yeah, it seems like the Central might be pesky, but like you said, there's not really those upper echelon teams, the ones that you would no say. And probably, you know, if we went to Vegas and looked at the odds for World Series champion this year, I'm guessing the top five would either be from the East or from the West. Do you think that 60-game season, I've seen a few people in conversation mention the integrity of the game, that we get a World Series champion, and that for the rest of time there will be a question, an asterisk, even if we don't necessarily put it next to that World Series champion. Do you have any concerns about that? And I, I guess I do, but I'm so excited at the possibility of sports just resuming anyway that I'm willing to just acknowledge that, yeah, this is maybe a little bit different, but I'll take it. Yeah, I think that whoever wins will probably look in majority of the people's eyes as not a real champion and put those in quotes. But if it's the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Astros or any of those teams that you would thought when the season started would be there, everybody's like, you know what? This is the logical conclusion. Baseball, I think, lends itself to the most, um, like uh, the champion that is never a fraud because of the gauntlet you have to go through to win the championship, usually in a regular season. Yeah, 60 games is kind of a flukish thing, but you still got to go through the division series, the AL, the LCSs, and then the World Series. Those are those are tough. Those are It's not like a one-game off, one-off like in the NFL where you hurt your, your quarterback gets hurt, you lose that one game, you're out of the playoffs, even though you're the best team. Baseball, you, you got it. You know, you, your starting pitcher is out. Hey, next guy up. You have three more games to play. You have three more games before you uh, get eliminated. So it's, I think this champion, no matter who it is, has earned that championship, maybe even more than anybody else because it's different from where they are used to. All these things that people are doing this year, will do this year, will be completely different than any other year. And so the manager will be more uh respected i think in my eyes the players will be more respected in my eyes than any other year because this year is just totally different it's gonna be uh weird to see baseball and with no fans too that is gonna be uh it's gotta be some mind-blowing things for these guys who've probably been playing in front of people since they've been in little league and aau tournaments and to have no one in the stands it'll feel like a b game and so you got to mentally get yourself up to remember this is a real game even though I hear no crowd noise, even though I hear no no cheering, no jeering on my side, I still got to get up. And that might be a hard thing for these guys to get used to of the silence of baseball when there's nothing going on. And then I'm just talking to Tanny, uh, Chris Tannehill last night about, you know, those little things that you don't usually pay attention to because the ambient noise gets drowned out by the crowd. You know, the catcher scooting himself closer to the batter if you're you know right or left hand he's scooting himself closer and just hearing him like hearing those footsteps yeah, I can right. hear those now it's like oh inside fastball here it comes type of things I'm looking for those little idiosyncrasies that happen during baseball this year that won't happen anytime else in the in the uh, history of this game 
Yeah, there's some positives to it. I mean, soccer games, especially the um, English Premier League, some of the German League games, and just hearing the nuances of that, players being sent off because the things that they would normally say that the crowd noise would maybe cover up a little bit, now the refs are hearing all of it. And then even fighting, which I'm not really into UFC, but that has taken on a whole new dynamic because you can hear the corner talking to their fighter and getting them ready for the next round. Uh, We're wondering if you, like, you know how the pitchers and catchers and the pitcher usually puts his hand his glove over his mouth doesn't work anymore Those conversations i don't know if that would you know you could whisper but not but usually they would talk in a regular voice and just put their hand over the mouth so they don't have any guys re- reading their lips but a conversation be heard now like the the uh, uh, pitcher getting squeezed you'll hear all that stuff uh the mfs coming from the pitcher the dugout all that stuff it'll be very fascinating to hear the all the ambient sound all the stuff that you usually don't hear and players being players you know there, this I think will be even more intense because so every game means like a regular season game means like two to three games in a regular year. Yeah. So a guy's getting squeezed. He's like, "What the hell? Oh, I need this game. I got seven of these. I got seven stars. And you're squeezing me. I'm one of them." Like the intensity would be more this year, I believe. Well, I don't know about for you growing up, but when I was younger, I would get so worked up if the Yankees lost opening day, one game. And now if I had to have a conversation like, you know, I don't have any kids, but let's say I did, you know, 10, 11 year old and they get all pissed off after one game and I'd actually have to say, you know what, you're right. That actually does hurt. You know, they're 0-1. That's not a good start. That's like 0-3. And I was just doing that math earlier about how, you know, if you go on, I mean, a team that starts, let's say, 8-2 and is in fantastic position to probably make the playoffs. And you would not normally say that in a 162-game year. So for me, that that condensed season, it's just going to be a super exciting 9, 10 weeks. Um, I'm excited to Can ask, I ask you a Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Your Yankees, like where we're talking about your tough division, this is the thing where I think divisions are really dumb because the Yankees have to play versus – the Boston Red Sox, the Toronto Blue Jays, the uh, Tampa Bay Rays, and the Baltimore Orioles. That is much tougher than the, what the White Sox have to face. So they have 40 games versus those teams while the White Sox have the AL, the AL Central. And then you got the gauntlet of the AL, AL, uh, NL East. Like, what if the Yankees, you know, they have a, a good year, but they fall short because a team in the AL, AL Central – or the NL Central is like, okay, we're going to have um, these victories versus the Reds, the Pirates, the Brewers, or the, like the White Sox. We're going to eat versus the Royals and the Tigers and, you know, split it with the, with the Twins and the, and the Indians. And I come up with 32 wins and the Yankees come up with 31. That's the stuff that I don't like because it's not fair to the Yankees. They got to play a tougher gauntlet to get to, this, to the championship or to the playoff or the tournament. So I don't know how a Yankee fan feels about being in the AL East where other teams don't have to face the gauntlet that the AL East and NL East present themselves. Yeah, I'll try I'll try to start with the optimistic view. When I look at the East, specifically the AL East, I think the Red Sox, I know it's still Boston, but they are down comparatively. Mm-hmm. The Blue Jays, to me, are the trickiest team in the East because kind of like the White Sox, that young lineup is going to be there for a long time. And they showed really the second half of last season that they are, that's no fluke. I mean, they got the kids of what, like three or four former MLB sluggers and they're all good. Yeah, They're all good. Yes, they are. I look at Baltimore, uh, Tampa is what they are. They're pesky, but it's hard for me to think that, um, 
in a 60-game season. I don't view them as much of a threat for some reason, but maybe that's my head's, my heart speaking and not my head. And then I look at the NL East, and certainly the Marlins stink. Uh, the Nationals, I think, take a slight step back after last year. But then again, the Braves and the Mets. Don't sleep on the Mets. You know, I know it's yeah. easy to make fun of them. And uh, the Phillies, too, with Joe Girardi on, in his first year. And Now, the question, I guess, would be back to you, and I need to... I feel like Major League Baseball hasn't done a great job of messaging in terms of the expanded playoffs and how that looks. Are there a specific number of teams per division, or are they just going to take all the teams, American League, National League, and say the six best records you're in, eight best records? How is that going to shake out? I think they're. I think they reverted back to the old system. I, I'm not sure if they did, like the ten teams who uh, have the best record, but I think they still do five and five. Like so, AL you get five. You know, you get five. The two last teams get to play each other for a playing game. Okay. If the players would have accepted the deal that the owners presented for them to say play sixty games, and then we'll have this expanded playoffs, you would have had sixteen teams. And I don't know if they would have done the sixteen best teams, which I think all leagues should do. You should play all the teams equal amount of times. I understand back in the day it was necessary to have divisions because of travel was more restricted to taking planes or they're taking trains back then or um planes that you know were not as good as they are now so understood that reason for divisions now the usefulness for divisions i think is pretty much done so if you play like an equal schedule so if you want to keep the, the the league together american national smooth but make sure that we're playing the Yankees six times. So we're playing the Red Sox six times. We're playing the Indians and the twins. And so when you make the playoffs, you have, you don't have any excuses. You say, we played the same teams, guys. We're the better team. We're going to the playoffs. Or we have the better record. We are the number one seed. I just think that baseball is in a rut right now. I know that people love to play the, as a Yankee fan, you probably love to play the intensity of the Red Sox, but, Imagine if it was only six games during the year of a 162. Yeah. Those six games would be like, man, we got to beat the damn Red Sox because we don't have 18 to mess around with this year. And I think it would be more, it would be funner for teams to see different players in their league, in their uh, home ballparks. Like, I don't get to see the San Diego Padres that much in Chicago unless I go to a Wrigley every year. I would love for them to play the White Sox every year, a home and home, so I could see Fernando Tatis, a former White Sox minor league great. Mm-hmm. They traded him for, uh, God, they traded for James Shields. Uh, <laughs> God, it still hurts. But that type of talent, I want to see that guy in my home ballpark playing my favorite team because I want to see the best. I think that, like the NBA does that well. It, it, you you get the home and home versus the other conference, and you at least get to see LeBron one time during. And he's here in Chicago. That's what baseball should do. Expand the game and make sure that everybody in that home market gets to see every star that's available in the league. I'm excited to ask you this question because it's been a long time since predictions have been a part of sports talk because there's nothing to predict. There's no games Mm -hmm. to talk about. It's all speculative. So as you look at the 60-game schedule, the way the divisions are formatted, the teams that might be more or less likely to get in because they're in a tough division or they're not in a tough division, What's the World Series matchup? Well, I'm going to go with the traditional. I think the Dodgers are the supreme team in the whole league. I think the Dodgers are a well-put-together team. And finally, 
going to get over the hump to actually win the World Series against your New York Yankees. I think the Yankees are destined and primed to make it back to the World Series. They haven't been in a minute. And 2009. They won one since, what, 09? That was the last time they were in it, too. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I think they're going to be in it, but I don't think they're going to win it because I think the Dodgers, they just have a, a filthy, filthy team. Like Their best pitcher used to be Clayton Kershaw. Now it's Walker Buehler. Walker Buehler is definitely their best pitcher. Got Clayton Kershaw as a number two. Um, the addition of Mookie Betts as your leadoff guy, right fielder. Uh, he's going to be playing for a, a big-time check, so he's going to try to show off. And I don't even know if Mookie Betts is their best player because Cody Bellinger is so goddamn good. So we're going to be cooking with gas out there in L.A. I'm, I mean, I know people don't get a chance to look at L.A. that much because of the West Coast thing, but, man. They are a very formidable team, and I look out for that team this year um, just because they just have so many weapons. And I think they have the young kid Gavin Lux coming up and Dustin May. Just uh, endless amount of prospects, endless amount of guys who they picked off the scrap heap, like Max Muncy is just good at baseball now, hitting 35 home runs a year. Justin Turner, another guy who was a former Met that now hits 35 home runs a year. Just goodness gracious, uh, that – that Dodgers thing, and just like your Yankees, they not only like I remember a couple of years ago when the White Sox traded for Tyler Clippert, I believe it was, mm-hmm. and that was the year the Yankees were kind of retooling. And then, like the next year, they're back in the playoffs, they're like retooling on the fly, like they didn't make the playoffs, and then the next year, they're one of the good teams again. And they, they do that seemingly, um very often like they can go out and get the big time prospect or the big time free agent like they did with Garrett Cole the big time number one pitcher that they have but also they can develop guys and make them stars I mean the trade for Gliber Torres he's a he's a beast Uh, just and the trade for John Carlos Stanton Aaron Judge is a beast this is and I don't know how old Brett Gardner is, but that some bitch still plays well. How? I don't, it doesn't make sense. I think he's thirty-seven or thirty-eight, and yeah, he's Goodness. he is by far the most tenured Yankee. I think he was the only guy in that 09 team that's still on the roster right now. But Man, I, Tommy Canley's still good. That's yeah. what we traded for tra- Tommy Canley and David Robertson. We traded back. Yeah, to the Yankees. Worked out all right, and I'm thinking about how this shortened schedule works out for the Yankees, especially because they had injury concerns at the start of the year with Aaron Judge and a rib, Giancarlo Stanton. Go figure was injured with something again. And that this, staff was really uh, depleted early, too. Yeah, and now that with the 60-game schedule, I'm thinking you don't really need to worry about innings so much. You don't need to worry about resting. You, you just go. And to me, that is, uh, I'm thinking about, you mentioned the Padres, and I know they got some young talent out there, but I wouldn't watch a Padres game unless, you know, well, and the Yankees yeah. were playing them. But now, just sort of like with the NBA coming back, if you tell me that there's just going to be baseball on for, you know, 10, 11 hours a day, chances are my TV will be tuned to whatever that baseball game is. And I think that as starved as we are for sports, we're going to be watching those Padres games. And and the Dodgers, last point about them, you know, they seem to have this unfair stigma about, you know, maybe they're soft or they're unable to win the big game, when in actuality, what more could you ask for a team from repeatedly making World Series, probably getting screwed out of the Astro Series in the middle of uh, all the cheating that was going on with that, it's remarkable what they've done, and I don't want them to beat the Yankees, but I do think they're probably deserving of finally getting a ring for everything they've done the last four or five years. It's remarkable what they've done. Yeah, like we were discussing earlier, like 
I would love the White Sox to win the World Series. But if they had a thing like the Braves had the 14 divisions and then one title, I wouldn't deem that as a failure. And same thing with the Dodgers. I think they've won six or seven straight AL or NL West titles. Getting into the playoffs is really, really hard, especially in uh, the baseball playoffs. Only a third of the teams get in. So that's kudos to the Dodgers for doing that. Yeah, it sucks that they haven't you know, gotten over the top and won a world championship. I don't think the team, the franchise as a whole, hasn't won one since 88 with Oral Hershiser. So it's really tough. But if that is, I think it is their year. But if they don't win it this year, what I call the Dodgers and their franchise uh, failure, no, they're probably going to win the NL West again. And they're going to be in it next year again. And they're going to be in it the year after that. This is just a well-oiled machine who has the general manager and and the uh, owners who are committed to winning. And same thing with the Yankees. I was uh, I think I tweeted a couple years no a couple weeks ago that the Yankees have the only general manager that has won multiple championships with the team he's currently the general manager of, and that's Brian Cashman. While people say. He has you have to have money and he's only be a good GM because he has money. That's calm that down. The man, like I said, has struck a couple great deals to supplement talent while he was trying to retool on the fly. And Brian Cashman, while he gets clowned for being a guy that only has success because of money, I think that is a little fa- false because that team um, need yeah, he can supplement the the lack of stuff that he has on his team with the money, the big paycheck, with the Steinbrenner's endless bank account. But you don't get guys on your team like Brett Gardner and keep Brett Gardner, uh, 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 Gary Sanchez, these other guys, uh, Glyber Torres I alluded to earlier, by paying them. No, you do good scouting, good drafting, international signing, things like that. He's done a great job out there, and uh, kudos should be given to him. I think he's a future Hall of Famer. Not to end the conversation about baseball on a down note, but do we have baseball in 2022? I believe at the beginning it's going to be in a strike. The contentiousness of this year where both sides knew that they needed to get a deal you know, to appease the fans, it seemed like a slam dunk for them to come together um, for a common cause and to get the game on. And this seems like it was just a uh, give up by the players and the owners. It's like, you know, we're not going to come to an agreement. We're going to implement our 60-game season. So they really didn't agree on this season. I think the players will file a grievance, uh, try to get some money back in the future from the owners. And this will go on to the 2021 after that season, the CBA talks. So I think the players are dug in. They got beat badly the last CBA. Killed. And so... With Tony Clark at the helm, he's been, I think, a horrible leader of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Um, Not very strong. And this year they had to give him some help with some good negotiators, guys who were hardline, want exactly what they want and not taking no for an answer. And I think that's going to continue into the CBA talks of next year. And so we'll miss a good portion of the 2022 season, I believe, from either a a player strike or a lockout. Um, but I'm in favor of the players getting what they want. So I don't hear any crying, no bitching, no moaning about uh, service time issues. That stuff should go away. Like holding guys back like Yohan Mankata, Tim Anderson, 
Eloy Jimenez, other guys back because you want to try to get him over an extra year. The Chris Bryant situation yeah. that happens the seven years now, he'll be in Chicago. That they should hard bind on that. We're doing away with service time because imagine baseball. I don't know the average years that players play, but imagine going through three years of minor leagues, getting paid whatever you're getting paid, and then having to get minimum paid in a sport. And then you don't get free agency until six or seven years out of that. Like you're already, if you went to college, you're 22 when you hit the door, then you're like 25 when you get to the major leagues, then you're 31. And we know now that they're not giving big time contracts to anybody who's over 31. So you just like, you just like use your, your usefulness of your contract or your uh, career is over. And now you just got to play for one year deals down the road, just to, just to play the game that you love. Well, back in the day, we used to 31 and you had a good year when you were 30, they would pay you good money. They would give you a multi-year contract, but analytics and such have said that that's not maybe a good idea to pay a 31-year-old big-time money. You're paying for what you're going to get, not what they've done in the future, which I agree with, but there's got to be a way where the players got to get a chance to get away from that initial team before seven years of service time. I think Maybe it, seven total years of service time. So whenever you draft them, the clock starts, play them from then. Do you think that our eyes were sort of open to this potential labor dispute back when, I think it was before the 2019 season, when a Dallas Keuchel doesn't get signed until June. And mm-hmm. you're thinking, all right, he's not 43. And I, I remember yeah. distinctly when like a 43-year-old Roger Clemens got a deal in June or July with the Yankees back in 07 or something. But no, Dallas Keuchel's in his mid-30s. He's a really good pitcher and maybe not great anymore, but he's still a three or four guy in a rotation. And uh, to me, that and a couple other free agents that year that just were not getting signed, uh, collusion is a strong word, but it certainly does seem that more than any other sports league, the owners in Major League Baseball, I'll give them credit for one thing. It seems like there is a lot of solidarity there that, okay, for us to protect our pocketbooks, here's what we all need to do. And they seem to be pretty hardline themselves about, oh, well, um, this is how we're going to operate in free agency, the service time issue that you mentioned. And I don't know if any of the other professional sports leagues have it to the same degree as Major League Baseball does in terms of um, ownership being that uh, hard line about labor issues. Yeah, it's there. While Major League Baseball Players Association used to be the strongest union, I mean, they got job in the last one because their own, their leadership was bad. Tony Clark is not great at his job. Um yeah, the Major League Baseball owners are also probably the strongest ownership group. With um, hockey, it's pretty much run by the owners. They don't really have the players don't really have a voice or a chance to uh, gain uh, any leverage as far as um, being a players league. It's more of an owners league. NBA, of course, is a players league. Adams, Adam uh, Silver now, David Stern before him. They kowtow to the players, which they should. It's The league is built around the players much less than the owners. They bring in a big-time um, bucks around the world. You know, they've uh, global, It's a global game now. So, And the NFL, they've had a contentious relationship, but not the same as a Major League Baseball and their players associated relationship. And, yeah, they're like NFL players usually – break apart because there's such a big, huge difference between the rank and file and the guys on the top. 
and they know they only have three years average of their careers being played. So um, it's always uh, the union is always separated between those guys and the, the rank and file is always like, yeah, yeah, let, let, let's sign that deal. That's what they just did this past year. And the years before where the owners send out a little memo and they send out a little, a little carrot and everybody's trying to go in for that carrot while the big players are like, yo, calm down guys. We can get our real deal. If you just saved your money for a couple of years so we can have the ability to sit out. We have the ability to not play football, but I don't think football players save their money well enough because they only get paid 17 times. So they don't get paid like throughout the year. So they get big checks, but it's only 17 times for the games that they play. So I think that the baseball uh, players are more unified because they understand that to get what they want, they got to be willing to strike. They got to be willing to not work, use that leverage. That is their only leverage in that regard. So um, that's why they're the strongest players association. That's why we've had the 94 lockout and such. They got what they wanted after that. They've had, good success versus the owners except for this last cba so yeah they have the strongest one and but the major league baseball owners also have a strong union or a strong union between themselves and they've been showing it with the supposed collusion they've had a couple last couple years where i think for the first time in a long time the average salary went down uh last couple years so owners are doing it right and they never show their books which is very Shrewd. sinister, yeah. but also smart <laughs> as hell. Yeah, right. And that's the that's the big unknown is how much money they're actually making. And I, I get mm-hmm. I get the sense they're doing okay. I want oh, to switch gears here. Uh, want to switch gears here because specifically what you guys are doing on Lawrence Holmes show up at six seventy, and the moment kind of calls for it. That yes, sports are something that are important in terms of being a diversion, or really even take it larger as a unifying sort of thing. But there are bigger things going on. So uh, take me through the last month specifically with what you guys have been doing on the show, because I know for the two and a half months before that without sports, every sports media person had to get creative. Uh, But one thing that I know you and what Lawrence have done specifically, even before George Floyd and the protests and the movement going on right now is that you've been outspoken. So uh, take me through the last month specifically. Has anything necessarily changed or has it maybe reframed how you guys approach each show? Well, for us, both being African-American men, we've always, like you said, we've always had these thoughts and presented it on our show as such. But sometimes it would run, it would uh, fall on deaf ears. People wouldn't listen or they'd like, politics keep politics out of our sports or talk sports blah 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 and we were like no we're gonna talk about what we want to talk about i think the murder of george floyd and the subsequent protest black lives matter um i don't know i I, it's different i said this on the air to lawrence it's different this time like there's been black men getting killed on video that people have seen Eric Garner, you've seen, you've seen the ones Sandra Bland, you necessarily didn't see her die on, on camera, but you've seen, you know, the Tamir Rice shooting, um, all these other deaths, they would be a spark real quick. People would say, this is not right. And then the next day people would forget about it. And probably because of the pandemic, people are at home. And the fact that 
they realized through this pandemic, uh, weirdly enough, that we're all in this together. We're literally everything that I do affects what you do. So I could whatever if I breathe on you, my breath could you know cause you to get this disease. So we are all in this together. I think people finally realize it's not just themselves here on this earth. It's everybody in this earth is a valuable member of this earth and we need to look out for each other. So when this happened and there was no ambiguity of his death, there was no resistance. There was nobody saying something like, Hey, he resisted or he should have followed, you know, all the stuff, all the excuses you get usually when a police officer kills an unarmed black man, especially you get those, um, excuses by those people who want to not listen to the argument that wasn't there this time. I think most people saw that uh, innocent man. I mean, even if he did the, the crime they, you know, they uh, accused him of, you have to have his day in court. He has to have his day in court. There's no judge, jury, and executioner with the police officers. They shouldn't be that. And so everybody, I felt like, came together and they realized that, yeah, this is real. Like, this is happening often. And the reason why we're now seeing it is because camera phones are more prevalent, uh, body cams, all these things are happening. But this has happened for millennia. It's happened for, not millennia, it's happened for centuries now, uh, where black men getting killed, or black women getting killed by authorities uh, uh, just, just because. And this guy, uh, Derek Chauvin, his look on his face, I think, also kind of sparked this kind of what the fuck just, sorry i don't know if i can cuss on you're this. good yeah like like what you know, what's going on here it's like why is he looking like that when he's taking another man's life why is he just so cavalier about just snuffing out a man's life his knee on his neck i just don't like that look so that's what me and lawrence took and i think our to our credit of our people who listen to our voices or the twitter follows it didn't fall on deaf ears for the most part. People were engaged, white people in general. Like, black people have been talking about this for a long time. White people I feel like got it, and they're getting it, and they're doing things. They're, like, active. They're, they're, it feels different. It doesn't feel like they're moving on to the next thing. No, the, the movement is keep on going. We're pushing to get the cops in jail for killing Breonna Taylor. That's real. Those things are, I can feel them. I feel the change between my white friends um, from before. It, it, isn't, it wasn't like they were not engaged before or it wasn't like they didn't care before. I just think that um, there's an old quote by Maya Angelou that says, once you know better, you do better. So they saw what was happening but it did i don't think it registered before this one it registered and said okay the next guy could be hurt the next guy could be lawrence the next guy could be some other guy that i know that i know that they're getting killed because of the skin color because people have a perception of them that is you know it's bad it's it's uh, criminality something they think that is uh, not um, of worth. And that's why you say black lives matter because our lives can't just be snuffed out and no one cares about it. And then the people who would say 
what about Chicago? Those people, the Black Lives Matter movement is universal. And so the Cavalier saying, what about Chicago talking about the murders of black on black uh, crime black people? Right. Exactly. And that stuff that, that those phrase. lives matter too. Like we're talking about all of those things. Like you got to pay attention to when a three-year-old dies in the city, you got to pay attention. Even if that guy's a gangbanger, what yeah, his life matters. Like why, what's the system? What's the life set up that people think that, they need to shoot another person or kill another person. How is this our lives? How is this their lives that they have to feel like survival of the fittest and kill each other for turf or territory? You got to get into the real issues of why those issues on the south and west sides of Chicago that happen around this country, why that is. So systemic racism is one of the main reasons why those things happen. So I think that our, my Caucasian brothers and sisters are waking up to those facts that this is not a just system for black people, brown people. And they realize that while I know people listening to this are going to be cringing, but white privilege is a real thing. It doesn't mean that you get a, a million dollar prize when you wake up as a kid. <laughs> you don't you know, get better treatment necessarily you know, when you, you know, get out of the hospital, it just means that you don't have to deal with the things that most of us black and brown people have to deal with because of your skin color. No one's treating you as uh, different because of your skin color. Those things matter. And I think white people have realized, like, you don't have to apologize for your privilege, but you got to use your privilege for the good of all the rest of the people. As Lawrence always says, like, we're not, we're on equal levels as a, as humans, but some people see white people as at the top rung. So if you are at the top rung, how about you reach back for the people below you? So supposedly in society and lift as you climb and lift them to your level and make sure that everybody's on equal footing and they get treated as such. If a person, black, white, Mexican, anything, commits a crime, treat that person the same as you treat the other people. I'm not asking for special treatment. I'm not asking for anything that is not, I don't, I didn't earn myself. I'm asking for my brothers and sisters, myself to be treated as such. If I don't do anything wrong, leave me alone. If I do something wrong, please chastise me, throw me in jail, but give me the same treatment you would get a white man. That's all we're asking for. So like, um, that's why I think this movement is just going because finally for anything to change in the American society, it needs for white people to take um, it seriously. We can't, we didn't change slavery on our own. That had to happen through white people. We always wanted slavery to end and it finally took white people to say, okay, we want it in too. It didn't take black people to change civil rights. We were fighting for it, but it needed for white people to put paper, pen to paper and sign it off. This is what racism needs. We need to eradicate racism and systemic racism because we need to be on an equal footing with everybody. Everybody as a human wants to be treated fairly, justly. If you do wrong, you get punished. If you do right, you want to get some type of uh, acknowledgement. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that's all I think people are asking for. And uh, I want my white brothers and sisters who are listening to this just to 
just to think about your life. Think about what's going on in your life. How many black and brown people do you know? And the ones you do know, what do you treat them like? What do you, you know? What do you think their lives are like? Just think about somebody else's life every day, and say, you know what? I think I can do this, that, and the other for improving the overall lives of people. Don't become white saviors. That's the white savior complex is always out there, but contribute, contribute to having a better dialogue in this, this systemic racist world and having a better, um, you know, cause like when we have kids, we're going to, that's all I think anybody wants our kids to be in a better world than we're in. And we've been having these conversations of racism as black people since we got here in America, it's improved question mark, but has it really improved from the years that we've gone through like the sixties? Yeah, they were, they're not hitting us with hoses anymore, but you're still doing a lot of things that happened back in the sixties. So where are we going? Where are we going to leave our, a better world for our kids in the future? I hope so. And I think this momentum will uh, get rid of those people who want to be racist and, don't want fair and free, um, uh, fair and free uh, people in this country. So that's what I think about it, and that's what our shows have been reflected of. Damn. Well, thank you for that because that was one all-encompassing for something that is really difficult to hit on. It's a complex issue. It's also a simple issue, and what I mean by that is you hit on a lot of the social and systemic parts of it. Uh, the simple part of it would be just, all right, if everyone treated their neighbor as themselves, and I know that sounds very kind of pie in the sky, but there is some truth to that. And you mentioned how uh, the white people that you do know, and I would put myself in that camp as someone that this video was different and it resonated in a way that other videos in the past, certainly they were disgusting in their own right. But this one was something that was eye-opening to a level that others were not. And I think that as a teacher for sixth grade kids, you know, I couldn't in good conscience not take a stand and actually start doing something but then even from a media lens thinking about how there aren't any games to talk about um thinking about how for the last i mean really since i was 16 years old i've been talking about sports and completely honest most of the athletes i talk about are young black men so i feel it almost an act of cowardice uh if i were to not come on here and at least give a platform or talk about these issues when I've spent half of my life saying, Hey, they scored this touchdown. They dunked that ball. But Oh, when it comes to their actual day-to-day lives, I'm a little bit uncomfortable about that. And, and are, are you finding, um, media figures that maybe you've known or maybe that you've listened to or read in the past stay silent throughout this period when there are no games to write about, when they could be at least using the platform to bring other voices in. Are you finding that up in Chicago in that media landscape and maybe even people that you know that you're thinking, come on, say something, do something? Um, I found that actually Dan Bernstein, he admitted his his guilt in making, I don't know, like he used to rail on a couple players back in the day and you know, he would feed into the narrative of lazy black player, lazy this guy. He wouldn't necessarily say it, but he would just repeat the stuff. And so he said he admitted his his role in perpetuating stereotypes back in the day. And I applaud Dan for realizing that he was doing that and apologizing and then using his platform to move forward 
and not do that and to actually promote uh, guys who are doing well and guys who are just, you know, being good citizens instead of just tearing down um, just random athletes not and asking the questions like maybe this guy got a raw deal because police in this country for the most part have treated black and brown people unfairly. Maybe I just don't take the word of what the authorities say and look a little further into what the player athlete are saying about how he got he or she got treated. So yeah, Dan has been really impressive in his, in his uh, awakening. And that's all we're asking for, I guess, apologizing for, uh, for, for past mistakes is always good. But the apology doesn't really mean anything unless you're doing actual work to rectify the situation. There's an old uh, Malcolm X saying, I believe it's like, if you stab me and you stab me nine inches and you pull it out six, it's like, that's not progress. If you pull out all the way, that's not progress. It's like the progress is you healing the wound that you made first place and then making sure you rectify what you've done to me, what you've, you stabbed me for. So, and moving forward. So that's the progress that we're looking for. Not just, Hey, I'm not stabbing you anymore. No, I'm, Hey, I'm sorry for stabbing you. And this is what I'm going to do to rectify that situation moving forward. That's what we're looking for. If you do harm somebody of Brown, black or Brown skin uh, in the future. So, yeah, I think uh, Chicago pretty much is a nice progressive city course our text lines we have occasionally sure. a person that is not with all of what we're saying but for the most part i've seen people are very open to dialogue at least that's di- like from being a hardline person that didn't see black lives matter like there's a lot of people that didn't say it back in the past the roger goodell change of heart of not wanting to protest that's all you want. You want somebody to recognize what they've done wrong, admit it, and then going forward, say, okay, I've done this wrong and let's rectify this. Anybody who wants to protest in the future should get a chance. And I'm willing to have Colin Kaepernick in this league. Um, I don't know if he's, he's said that yet, but I need to have a team in the NFL have Colin Kaepernick in to be a backup somewhere. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous by now. We got so many bum quarterbacks in the league and <laughs> Colin Kaepernick, while he wasn't a, a earth beater, he wasn't a world beater. He still it should be, there's what? He should be in the you league. say there's two, two t- quarterbacks per team, there's what, 64 guys? You think there's 64 guys in the, this world that are better quarterbacks than Colin Kaepernick this last three years when Mike Glennon's still getting paid? Hell no. So this is what needs to happen. He needs to be made whole from the three years he's missed and from the future that he could have. He's a 33-year-old man now. I think he has at least two, three more years, at least, of decent football in. I mean, he wants the Super Bowl. I mean, hell, you're getting bums all the time. Like, David Phil has been in the league forever, and he's never been good. Uh, Chase Daniel, <laughs> while making a lot of money, has Tons never really of been money. good at football. Um, congratulations to him for finessing the game, but also – is he better than Colin Kaepernick? No. So let's let's uh, be real about things that are really happening. The blackballing of Colin Kaepernick needs to be settled. And if we get that settled and move progress from that to the next thing and let Colin Kaepernick speak his mind, because what he was speaking about was real. Everybody sees that now. 
real stuff. And he's going to go down as a Muhammad Ali type of figure, a Tommy Smith, um, John Carlos type of figure, while not that great of a football player of Muhammad Ali's caliber. He still stood for something when he lost his whole job. Like you said, he sacrificed everything just so he can stand on some principle to save black and brown people from getting brutally beat by police or killed. So yeah, I, those you, type of things are great. I mentioned earlier that it can be compl- complex and it could also be simple. And the Kaepernick situation, just a very simple case of, oh, right, that's racism right there, right in front of us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that white people, there's this discomfort. You mentioned the idea of apologizing or I think some white people that maybe they feel as if they haven't done anything directly racist or wrong. So they're like, well, why would I have to apologize? They get a little bit weird about that. And they aren't sure how to reconcile it. But you mentioned uh, that Malcolm X quote, which I think you pretty much got spot on there. um, And that it's really about healing the wound instead. So, um, you know, what I am encouraged by, and I want to, last question I have for you on this is overall, if you're encouraged too, because I am, um, specifically because of the diversity that you see within the movement, and even from a sports media lens, f- seeing far less of the old stick to sports. And I'm guessing you guys, even on the text line, are probably seeing that to a lesser extent than you might have back when Kaepernick started kneeling in the first place. Yeah, I think we're making progress. And I think it has to do with younger white people. What, like I said, black and brown kids always been in it. And I always go give them credit because they started this movement, but to get anything done, we need the youth. We need the, the older white people to get in. But the people who I see marching young kids, young, white, brown, Mexican, all these people just coming together for a common cause to have unity. And I think the kids, the generation below me, millennials and then Zoomers, are better people than we are. They're, they've understood that this stuff cannot continue to their lives, into their adulthood. And they want to nip this in the bud immediately. And, you know, we didn't, I didn't, as a generation Xer, I didn't have all this, you know, forethought and, I know my peers in Generation X didn't have all this forethought and all this energy and all this like justice for all type of thought thinking. These kids are really impressing me with how they're like, it's not a one-time thing. There's protests going on currently now still like they're not done. They have momentum. There's people always talking about this. It's not going away. It's not, just a one-off and we see the officers from Minnesota get thrown in jail and then tried. It's, we got to get Breonna Taylor's killers in jail. We got to get these other people's, the, the guy in, um, Ahmaud Arbery's yeah. uh, three killers. We got to get them tried and then jail and then put away forever. That's like I said, we don't need better treatment. I mean, like we don't need better treatment than white people or anything. We need equal treatment. Justice has to be equal. You kill somebody, you get the same treatment. You, like the Felicity Huffman, she goes to jail for, what, two weeks? <laughs> I think that's then, it, 14 uh, days, yeah. A, yeah, a, a black lady and who was homeless trying to get her child into a better school district gets five years yeah. for that. Like, those things don't equal up. And the, the crimes are different. One's trying to get a child a better life, a better life because the school district that she would have went to or he would have went to isn't representative. And that's another thing. Schooling, 
I mean, in Chicago, it's a big time deal. You don't get into a Catholic school here in the city for high school. You're you're done. You you can't have a quality education, Catholic or magnet school. You're you're pretty much done. CPS schools are not up to the same level as those other schools. We need to give equal education to kids. We got to give equal opportunities to kids um, of black and brown communities that their white counterparts are. I'm lucky I was born and raised in the suburbs of Chicago. So Wheaton, it's an affluent mm-hmm. suburb. So I was given a chance to have a quality education, but I had no choice in that matter. I was not, I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose my skin color. I didn't choose any of this stuff. Why should a kid have to suffer because they live in a certain area of the United States than the other kid down the street. Why should I have the advantages of being in school district 200 where education is taken uh, seriously than somebody who's in the South or West or North sides that doesn't go to a, or doesn't have enough money to go to a Catholic school. It has to go to a public high school where education is not as good because class sizes are bigger uh, teacher quality is not as good as the ones in the Catholic schools and on and on. So these things, uh, like as we were talking about systemic racism, uh, white flights to the suburbs uh, cause all these type of problems in our society, the influx of drugs into the community, uh, the criminalization of drugs. I mean, it's a long, long, long um, thing that I don't think we have time for, but there's a lot of reasons why I think racism continues to happen in this country and i think that we have the momentum to start it to start the ball rolling it's a long like i tell my white friends all the time it's not going to be probably in my lifetime or yours it's going to be maybe in our grandkids lifetime where they start seeing some actual equality for all for every person and it's going to be a long slog and if you're committed to the credo of this country liberty and justice for all then you should be willing to participate. You should be willing to do whatever it takes to give everybody the equal chance to have a life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You should be into that. And that's what I just want your listeners to have. Just the open mind to say, you know what? I feel like I've had a pretty good life. Yes, I've worked hard for my pretty good life. And maybe in the past, I thought that others didn't. You know, I was born in this thing with a two-parent household, and my parents had, I saw a person that did the job that I do right now, so I saw representation in my young life to see, I can do that job. Or I saw somebody just in passing, or I had some mentor that said, hey, you can do this, give you some motivation. And I think these things are important, and I hope your listeners understand that we're in for a long, long journey, but you can do it. One one step, then the other step, then the other step, then the other step. Just keep on going. It's not going to be just snap your finger, racism gone. It's going to be a long journey. So I hope uh, you're open to that. I hope you guys are willing to listen to me and others to get get this moving. And like I said, we're willing to listen to what you got to say. Contribute. Ask questions that you don't know. Make sure that you might come off maybe ignorant, but if you're coming with a pure heart and real questions, I think that your fellow black and brown people will listen to you and try to educate you on what they're feeling like. And just like 
anything else. If we have questions for you, we'll be willing to impart our knowledge or to ask you a question. You can give me the perspective of you. So this is all we need. We need to see each other as equals, as people, as humans that are all in this together. We're all on this earth together. We need to act accordingly. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, people that maybe haven't taken part in this conversation yet, I mentioned the word discomfort earlier. I think the part of it may be that they're afraid if they say the wrong thing, they're going to get attacked. And I'm thinking, okay, well, if you get attacked by a few people on Twitter, big deal. But the the key part would be, uh, this is where I think intent matters. Yeah. I think actually coming into it, even if there is an ignorant thing that might be said, if you are coming into it with um, good intentions matter at the start of a conversation like this. And then I think uh, if you don't have the conversations, you won't learn anything anyway. So Herb, I, I, I think, oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I think Twitter, a lot of words and a lot of uh, statements can get lost. The nonverbal communication is not there, all oh, yeah. that stuff. So if you can have a conversation face to face with somebody much better, Twitter is a very, very um, nasty, vile place where <laughs> conversations, civil conversations go by the wayside. Yeah, they do. I, they I do. participate in the, in the badness of Twitter, too. So, um, yeah, if you want to have a real conversation, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, hey, black guy that I know, can we talk type of thing? I would, you know, just if you're you have a guy at work, you know, just approach him or you know, have a friend. It's like, hey, man, I, I'm just. I want to know things. I want to learn. I want to participate. Just ask him. Like, and if that person doesn't feel like it, don't feel offended that he or she doesn't want to engage you in that conversation because it's a it's a burden to to actually be black and brown and then you know have to explain all these other things to people. It's it's kind of uncomfortable for some people. Me myself, I'm good with it. You know, but not everybody. I'm we're not a monolith, so we're not the same but also we're in the same fight for everybody. Herb, you are a jack of all trades. You're all over the place in terms of radio, podcast. Where do we find you? Um, Ecknerwall23, that's Lawrence spelled backward 23, on Twitter and on Instagram. I don't really post any pictures, but whatever. Um, I am on Locked on Socks. It's a podcast with my friend and co-worker at Chris Tannehill. It's at Locked on Socks, and we talk about the Chicago White Sox, of course. Get put out probably two, three episodes a week. When the season starts, we'll put out like five Excellent. with game recaps and such like that. And then if you want to listen to me, I'm on 670 The Score, Lawrence Home Show, 12 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. And then I just stick around for the McNeil and Parker show. I really don't say anything, but I'm just there. So, yeah. I would appreciate you having me on, Carl. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I'm glad that you spoke, because for the longest time on Twitter, having followed you, I was going to ask you the pronunciation of your Twitter name. I know it's Lawrence backwards, but you say, say it one more time so I get it right. Ecknerwall. Ecknerwall. Okay. I will yeah. remember that, because I was going to say that in the intro, and I kind of stumbled over it. I deleted that and said, you know what? I'm just going to ask him when he actually gets on. Uh, Herb, I appreciate it. And you guys are doing great work. It, it really is... Uh, you know, what, what you and Lawrence have done up there from that 11 to 1 spot is it was good before, but it, it seems like there are moments that uh, certain shows are just kind of made for. And I think that you guys are, are finding that balance as a sports talk format. You're, you're finding substantial ways to talk about things. And um, it, it's been a great listen. I, I listen to old uh, episodes via podcast and just keep doing what you're doing, and uh, I'm going to keep listening, and I appreciate your time. 
Thank you very much, Carp. All right. I appreciate you guys having me on. I think you having me on and continue doing what you're doing, sir. Because like I said, we can't get this done without willing ears and guys who are ready to participate. Guys and girls willing to participate. Absolutely. Thanks, Herb. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. So Herb Lawrence, 670 the score with Lawrence Holmes from 11 to 1 and also the Locked on Sox podcast and the 773 Sports Podcast. Follow him at Ecknerwall23. That's Lawrence backwards, 23 on Twitter. Okay, so we are back. 200 Level is back. We got Shannon Ryan coming up later this week. Great conversation there with Herb. And there were certain answers where he went for a good five, six, seven minutes. That's okay. And as I mentioned in the podcast before I left on vacation, when it comes to what the role of sports media is in all of this, this being the racial conversations that are going on right now, at a minimum, I think it is our responsibility to give a platform for people that can speak to it, certainly better than I can. And I mentioned how sometimes we are clumsy I say we. I can be clumsy probably talking about things like this. So, well, what is one opportunity to learn and grow a little bit is to have uh, some of these guys on, whether it be Herb, whether it be Kerry Davis, Antonio Adams. And these conversations are going to continue. But as you heard here today, hey, sports are coming back too. So we are still sportsing on the 200 level. We will not forget that. Uh, But I do appreciate you listeners for riding this wave with us in what has been the craziest year in my 33 years, that's for sure, and certainly the craziest couple months. I think that as crazy as March and April were, May and June took the cake, but I am optimistic, and I hope that no one listens to these podcasts and thinks that I'm a cynic about the way things are going. If anything, I'm more hopeful than ever, and Herbert mentioned younger kids, younger generation, and that he's encouraged by them. I can speak to that specifically, having been a teacher now for a few years and teaching sixth grade kids. That generation and really the generation above that, the 18 to 22, uh, 22-year-old college kids, they get knocked on a lot for being kind of beholden to their phones and Snapchat and all that and being tuned out. And I understand why that criticism gets levied, but I really think that that is unfair representation of what that generation is capable of. They are active and are, are sort of thrust into this conversation in a way that a lot of younger generations before that have not been. So I am encouraged all across the board, even though you might look at a few tweets that I have and think, why is, you know, why is Carp being sarcastic to this guy about this? Or why is Carp making a big deal about masks? Yeah, there are going to be frustrations along the way. I'll address them. But at the end of the day, I really do think that we're going in the right direction. It's just uh, before you get to that level of progress or that place that you feel good about it, you're going to have a lot of road bumps. And my God, have we had a lot of road bumps in 2020. All right, so Herb, Lawrence, 670 The Score, podcaster, jack-of-all-trades. Great having him on. Shannon Ryan coming up later this week. A reminder, the 200 level is brought to you by DPDO. Online at dpdo.com. For all the best deals and prices, dpdo.com. Also, 4th and Kirby online at 4thandkirby.com. Use coupon code 200 level. That's 200 level or the 200 level. They take either one for 10% off your order at 4thandkirby.com. And State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com for all your life, auto, home, renters, business, you name it. Brian Hansen, State Farm agent at brianismyguy.com. Alani Inquirer, Champagne Showers Podcast Network. This was episode 98. Episode 100 is next week. So we'll at least get Trevor and Harry on and try to have some fun along the way. I appreciate all of you for listening. We're back to the longer podcast. It's good to get a guest on. We got another good one later this week and lining up some good ones throughout the rest of the summer. And before you know it, baseball will be back. Football will be in training camp. Football games will start. Sports, they are returning. All right, take care, everybody. Stay safe. 
We'll see you later this week. It is the 200 Club.